Well, good morning. It's really good to be here this morning. Uh, genuinely, like, glad to be here. I, you know, it's funny. Sometimes you give yourself over to prepare for a sermon, and then, like, weeks like this, I felt like God was preparing me for the sermon, revealing places in my heart that did not, add, like, match up with what we just read. The, the flu bug, type A flu, like, swept through our house starting last Sunday. That's why the rest of our family wasn't here. It just continued on. I was not a casualty somehow. I did not get it. But, man, just, like, bringing to the surface all the areas I don't want to serve. And so um, that was going on. We really didn't know like if I would make it here this Sunday. If, like, so I told Chad, um, normally, obviously, we do sermons of words. But if not, this text was appropriate. We were just going to put under your seats like numbers. And if you got a one, you matched with the one. And we were just going to have a sermon of works. And you were going to wash people's feet. And so that was their backup plan. So you should be very thankful that... Uh, I'm just kidding, right? We'd squirm, right? But that's where we're at in this text. We see this passage where Jesus does the unthinkable. He washes people's feet. Um, It's really significant, actually, where we're at. Uh, John 13, here, there's this transition in the Gospel of John, beginning with chapter 13. Uh, John, now, he moves us into this inside room of Jesus, his his last hours and his last words with his disciples. And, And you can just see it, right? It's like supper times with night, and like the shadow of the cross is there, the shadow coming from sins. It's like it's casting over and it's under this shadow in this night where John, he's wanting to invite his readers to hear Jesus' last words, right? I mean, these, are, these words we're going to receive over these next few weeks and even months, these are his most pointed words. As he goes to the cross, we have, and coming up in three chapters, we have his most heartfelt words, these intimate words, revealing words. And I, and I was thinking about that and even reading a few of um, in the back of words like this, uh, th- this week's significant in my life. So this time last week, last year, my grandpa passed away. So this coming Friday, so it's been heavy on my heart, just remembering him. And a couple years ago, when he really started getting sick uh, on his birthday, I'd given him a journal. And I'd just say, hey, Papa, whatever, however you want to fill this, but I would just love to have your words. You can do whatever you wish. And so he, starting on his birthday all the way through in, in July that year, all the way through November, every page is filled with just his life story, meaningful words. I mean, this is just it is a treasure. I'm back there just reading things he wants me to know, things he remembers. And it's, I mean, this is like the most valuable possession besides the word I got in my life. I come back because I have this. And, and I was thinking about him and, and, and this week, and, and I just miss him. And, and honestly, I'll probably talk about him a lot because part of who I am is because of him. Like I follow Jesus, I think, in the way I do because of his example. Things we even see in this text he exemplified for 30 years of my life. But, but I also share that not just to, to let you be in personally who I am, I was thinking, like, like imagine if, if this week somehow we could let it be known that we're anyone who came, we're going to get Jesus to write to them in a similar way, right? Just like a journal, like his words, like his heartfelt words, the words he, he wants them to know. Like, I think this place would be flooded with people, right? Like, I want, I want to hear from Jesus, right? I want, I want to hear what he has to say to be known by him and to know him in a more intimate way. And yet we don't realize this is already what he's given us in the Gospel of John. Here, here, starting in chapter 13, this is what we have here. Like before he goes and he does the particular work of death on the cross, we have these personal words of deep care, primarily for the 12, but even in John 14, we begin to see also for us, all of his disciples. These are two his disciples. So it's very significant in this transition where we're at today. And as he starts this, though, he does this really shocking thing. Like, he starts this last scene in the most shocking way. And I think at this point, it shouldn't be. Like, we shouldn't be surprised by Jesus um, in his humility, right? His intentionality and his goodness. Somehow, they still cannot be overestimated. 
but also equally they can't be expected. Because on this last night, from this last scene, we have in here, we see this call to be a servant, which in and of itself is not abnormal. Like if you think about that, leaders often call people that they lead to serve, both good and bad leaders, they call people they lead to serve. But Jesus here, also calling us to serve, and he does, and we follow him. But before giving this call to serve, he first serves them. I mean, he's the cornerstone, the foundation, the king. And yet in his kingdom, he flips the role of authority. Like he's Lord, and yet he leads from bottom up, right? Solely Lord, only authority. And yet he doesn't position himself at the top, but rather he uses his position to platform those he loves through love and humility. And then he calls us to be like him and participate, participate with him in the same way. Like what we see here is Jesus, he doesn't just call us to serve, but then he actually confronts us in his service. And he does so through in the most unprecedented humility in order to change our hearts to match his. Like here, right before he dies for his disciples, he's once again bound up in his love for them and he moves to wash their feet. And I just think how amazing this is. Like, don't you think it would be okay for like this one time in Jesus' life for him to be a little bit preoccupied with what he's about to do? I mean, he's about to go demonstrate his love for us by going to the cross. So if in these final hours, if he had just stopped just briefly, right? Stop teaching, stop leading, stop loving, stop serving. We'd be like, we get it. We understand what you're getting ready for. But up until the end, the overflow of who he is, like what can't help but run over as he goes to sacrifice for us is to once again serve because of his deep love. And that's what it says right here in verse one. So if you have your Bibles, what Kim just read, verse one of John chapter 13, says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay, revealed in these verses. Well, up until this point had been the mysterious eternal plan of God in our Old Testament, right? They don't understand exactly how it's gonna play out. Now it's not only being shown, but it's being fulfilled, right? And in this introductory verse, in this verse one of chapter 13, we see when and the who and the how of this plan of God that's now being fulfilled. So first, the when. How is this being fulfilled? Well, the answer in the context of this verse, it's now, right? It says that the hour has come, so it's now. Like, think about that. Like, the countdown of painful hour after hour after hour. Like, imagine the first step out of the garden for Adam and Eve, right? They left this perfect garden because they rejected God out of a tree. And since that time, hour after hour after hour is counting down to this point where Jesus goes to this last location before he once again also goes to a garden and a tree. Hour. It's here. Like we have to feel the weight of this. And I was thinking like significant hours in our life, right? When you think of the most notable moments of your life, they're potentially all wrapped up too in the same way this leading up and that unfolding of the hour. And so I thought of many things I could share, but um, I think this one is applicable. It comes after. And I, I was reminded of the day that Brandy and I got married. And so um, we got married in Florence, Alabama in 2016. And so I remember waking up that day, I had an alarm set for 7 a.m. So I woke up at 3.30. I mean, I was ready to go. And now we're at the Hampton Inn in Florence and all of Harrisburg that came down were staying at the Hampton Inn. And I didn't know what to do, but I knew it wasn't sleep. And so I just remember I woke up and just 
for like the next four hours, just rode the elevator waiting for people who might get on, who are going to get coffee, just drinking coffee, talking, because it was go time. The hour was here. I was ready. And then going to the church and just not knowing what to do. So just playing game after game of ping pong, right? Being ready till it's finally time and putting clothes on right before. And we go out with my buddies and we're standing and the hour, it feels like it's here. And we are I was ready to go out, so we went out three songs early because I couldn't remember which one to go towards, right? And so just stood out there for three more songs. But I knew, I knew when it was her song, right? When those first chords started to strum, I knew now it's happening, right? Like the hour is here. And that feeling of the doors beginning to open and Brandy walking out, right? That feeling of the hour and the culmination of the hour and the leading up to it, it's significant. And you don't forget those things, like countdown to the hour. Likewise, that's what's happening here this countdown to the hour. Like, but I want you to see, even more than just a long countdown after hour of hour that's finally arrived, this is actually the climactic hour of all eternity. Like this is actually the fullness of God's plan. So we don't just go back to the garden till now, but rather from eternity past, this is the hour. It's always been the hour. This has always been God's plan. Think about this then. Like think about our God that the fullness of his plan involves us. And like almost like take a step back when you hear that, right? But if we really like examine what's happening here, what the Bible tells us. Like we realize when we look at our own story, we know we're not the main character of our own story. But what's most amazing is also we're not an afterthought or even a minor subplot, right, of God's story, right? But God in his vastness and his infinite nature, he doesn't just involve you or benefit you in this side way, but the hour for Jesus is God uniting himself to you and you to himself forever. The eternal hour of God is uniting, uniting you, this union with you, like this hour here. This means it's not just you being saved and then it's over. That's not what the hour is, just a moment of salvation and then it's over. But rather it's the beginning, like now to the end. Rather it's Jesus once and forever entering into an everlasting union with his people, a people permanently tied to him, and a people who are then ushered into the triune union of father, son, or spirit. Like, it makes me think of some coaches, right? Like, you know, a coach before, before a game doesn't really know what to say. So it'd be like, this next hour for the rest of your life. Like, it's so corny. It's like, I hope not, right? Like, I hope this isn't for the rest of my life, right? Like, like, whether, like we could run a good zone defense, like, for the rest of my life. No. But in this case, it's true, like for this time, or, or this, this time it's true, except the stakes are literally infinitely more because this hour is for all of eternity, not just for the rest of our lives, but for all eternity. So that's what we see here. The when, it's now, it's happening, it's significant. The next thing we see in this verse, it's who? It's, and it's those that Jesus has, has saved, those he died for, and those who choose to repent and believe in him. So what we see here, and, and I highlight this, but for our time's sake this morning, I just encourage you to go back on the website and listen to Chad's sermon from last week because he really skillfully in great detail walked through this portion of who? Of those who Jesus chose and those who also simultaneously repent and believe in him. And the third thing then we see in this, so it's when, who, and it's how. And what does John tell us? Like how did the mysterious plan of God become fulfilled here? He says, well, by loving them to the end. That's how. Like this final sentence shows us the full measure of Jesus' heart. Like having loved his, having loved his own who are in the world, it says he loved them to the end. Like think about that. He loved them to the end. He loved his disciples 
not because of how good they were, but in spite of how guilty they are. And he loved them to the end. Like, to what end, right? To the end of what? To the end of his life? Undoubtedly, right? To the end of their debt? Absolutely. But ultimately, he loved them to the degree that is the fullness of his very character, an infinite love, a love that has no end. Again, I, I shared a bit about my grandpa, and one of the things he would often do uh, as a little kid, like I'd walk in the room, or when I'd leave his house, he would say, like, instead of saying bye, he would say, I love you this much. And he'd stretch out his hands. He'd want me to do it back to him. And so he'd say all the time, I love you this much, as far as his arms could stretch out. And so I started doing that with Brooks, and Brooks love it, because he'll say, Daddy, Daddy, I love you this much. And I share that because I think here, it's what we see. Like, Jesus said and showed the same thing, right? With his arms stretched out on the cross. I love you this much. This is how much I love you. And in fact, as we think about that, and I was thinking about Psalm 103.12 this week, it says that this, about this love of God. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so too is our sin removed from us. Now, here's what's amazing when we really start thinking about this, this love of God, him telling us his love, declaring his love. Like from science now, we know that God has created a universe that is expanding. What that means then is, is that the east is always getting further from the west, right? If it's expanding east and west, you're going further and further from each other. This means then just as his hands were strung out and bore sin, as he declared and demonstrated his love for us, those same exact hands, those God's hands that hold and stretch the very fabric of the universe, they're declaring the limitlessness and the endlessness of his love. Think about that. Like, perhaps the vastness of an expanding infinite universe not only points to the reality of the creator, and it does, right? It comes back to a single point, and the creator, we, we see that in science, but is also our creator continuing to demonstrate just how much he loved those who are his. How he loved them to the very end. Because even his universe is declaring that his love knows no end. Isn't it amazing? It's also what makes verse 2 so shocking. Like when you read verse 2, we process this, and then we come to verse 2. Here's what it says. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And so... I was processing, well, what do you say about this week? And then I, I heard a, an illustration from a pastor who used to live in, in, in Memphis, Tennessee, pastor to church there. He's now gone to be with the Lord, named Adrian Rogers. And, any, and he, I won't tell the story near as great as he does. He's one of the best orators of all time preaching, but I'll try because it's a good story. Um, he, he says a bear hunter really wanted a fur coat, really wanted a fur coat. So this hunter, one day he grabs his gun because he wants a new fur coat and he goes out and he goes on a hunt and eventually he finds a deer. And he draws his gun, but before he could shoot the bear, the bear stood up, right? And he said, hey, hey, hold it right there. Like, what are you about to do? Like, don't pull that trigger. And of course, that got the man's attention. And so the bear said, let's just talk about this, right? The bear said, so you want a fur coat? And deduce, that's what he wants, a fur coat. He said, okay, is that right? The man said, yeah, that's what I want. I want a fur coat. And they said, hey, all I want is a good meal. That's all I want. So why don't you come here and we'll talk about it. You want the coat? I want the meal. When it was all over, Andrew Rogers tells the story, when it was over, he said the bear had the meal and the man had the fur coat. <laughs> right? That was a pretty good story. And it highlights the truth here. Like, you can't compromise with the devil. 
right? You can't continue to sit down with sin and with Satan and then expect to still get up and leave with life from the Lord. That's the warning here. That's what we see play out in the life of Judas. And when John, or when John tells us this, what he isn't saying is that Jesus is the one who pulls back from Judas, but rather he's saying there's a real danger of when you pull back from Jesus. Judas pulls back from Jesus here, and Jesus gives that to him. And it's shocking. But even more than that, what's more astonishing is what Jesus does in response in knowing all this. Because Jesus doesn't run Judas off. But amazingly, what we see below is that Jesus not only washes his disciples' feet, but he also washed Judas' feet. Like, John wants us here, I think the readers, to realize just how loving Jesus is. Because he includes Judas in verse 2, I think in what, partly to intentionally make known that Jesus includes Judas in this foot washing. Or to put another way, who he doesn't exclude. He doesn't exclude Judas. But just think about the love of Jesus here. Like, have you ever thought of this? That, that when Judas went to betray Jesus, he went with clean feet? Have you ever thought of that? Feet freshly washed? By Jesus? Like, isn't that amazing? Astonishing? We see this play out in verse 3. The act uh, starts playing out in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose up from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay. So, so Jesus' special, special knowledge of his Father's will that was recorded in, in the first verse uh, of John 13, it's repeated here again. But this time, John includes two significant additions. He knew not only that his time to leave the world has come, that, as we said, his hour had come, but also here we see that, that he also knew that he had come from God and also that the Father then God had put all things under his power. So not just the hour, but that he had come from God for this hour. And in this hour, God had given them all things. They're all under his authority and his power. Now, here's why it's so important. Like, if that's really the case, what would you expect Jesus to do next? Like, like if all power, if infinite power is his, because it's him, if it's at his disposal, then by the sheer like, reality of his will, nonetheless, merely by a word, he could surely wipe out all evil, right, with his holy wrath. But maybe we don't expect that in these verses because we've also come to understand that he's merciful. So maybe instead we would assume in these verses this outflow of being brought up about Judas and what he's about to do, we would assume some sort of strong rebuke, right? Some, re- claimed, some, some push to repent with a truth claim. And it's not that Jesus doesn't offer those in other places. Um, but here, in this moment, with Judas included in the mist and the full shadow of the cross draping over the night, he does the unthinkable and he gets up and he moves to wash his disciples' feet. I, I encourage you, like, don't miss how unexpected this is just because you might be familiar with the story. Like, maybe to help, like some context of foot washing to understand really why this is so unthinkable. Um, washing people's feet in this time, it was a common practice because it was needed. And so that's true. But what's also true is peers did not wash one another's feet. Like, I didn't find this in any commentaries, but I think it fit, and I think it should have been in there. Like, feet are just weird no matter what century. I think that's how we could sum up chapter 13, right? Feet are weird no matter what century you're in. Like, they have... So, of course, then, a master doesn't wash feet. Like, like the disciples wouldn't even wash one another's feet. In fact, it was such a lowly task that Jews would not even permit other Jewish, Jewish servants to do this. 
Like this task was reserved for the lowliest of the most menial of servants. Like the last of the last at the bottom of the bottom was the foot washer. That's who would do this. And yet here, he who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, like the one through, through whom all things were created and all things were created for, right? Like we see in Colossians, every throne and every dominion and every ruler and every authority, they're subject to his kingship. This king, he rises up and what does he do? He assumes the position of the lowliest, the most menial servant. It's amazing because what we have here is, is a drama. It's, uh, it's the playing out of what Paul records for us. We read a couple weeks ago in Philippians 2. So I'm just going to read it again. Like He's actually demonstrating here in this act what Paul records for us in Philippians 2. Is having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. That's what the Bible says, right, about Jesus. But then here in John, this is what he shows about Jesus. He shows that Jesus, he rises from supper, just as in the incarnation, he rose from his place of perfect fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he lays aside his garments, just as he temporarily laid aside his glorious existence. He takes and he wraps a towel around his waist, just as he took upon himself the form of a servant. And he pours the water into this basin to wash his disciples' feet, just as he was about to pour out his blood to wash away every human sin that repents and believes in him, to cleanse his children. Right? Isn't that incredible what we see here? And in fact, in the next verses, we're going to see just how this unfolds. Um, but also in it, we're going to see three particular teachings straight from this one action here. Or to put it another way, how this act of Christ far outlived the action that he does here. So if you will, I'm going to read verses 6 through 11, and, and we'll see three ways, three teachings of Jesus. Starting in verse 6 in, in John 13, it says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, then you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet then, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for you knew the one who is about to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Okay, a few things in this. First, verses six through seven. It's safe to say that all the disciples were embarrassed by Jesus doing this, but specifically Peter objected and even attempted to reject this. But in response to that, Jesus, um, he says, no, 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 like Peter, you have to submit to this foot washing. Like just as Peter doesn't yet understand why Jesus must go to the cross, he therefore can't anticipate how this act actually symbolizes it. It's what it's pointing to. And in verses uh, verses 8 through 9, Peter further demonstrates this incomprehension by his next words. What does he say? He says, like, Jesus, you, you should never wash my feet. You'll never do this. Like, never. Not happening. Like, in his words, they're strong here. Like, when you read them in the Greek, they're strong words. Like, and he's saying them to Jesus. When I was reading, I was thinking, like, anytime I have little brothers who are twins, and uh, it was just their birthday two days ago, so, like, four years younger than me. And uh, growing up, like, I knew you don't ever talk back to dad. 
but somehow like that did not get communicated. And like, I'm like, they, you know, they say no or something and I would be fearful. I'm like, guys, like, and like something like they'd be okay. I'm like, what is going on? Like, I mean, here I ain't like, you know what I mean? Like if you're the oldest, maybe you've had that experience before. Like you get nervous when your younger sibling, right? Like his, his words are strong to Jesus. But yet though they're wrong and they're outraged and they're objection, he's really only able to think in the level of what's socially fitting. So Jesus knows that, Jesus understands that he doesn't understand yet. And really, to be honest, if all this was about was just washing feet, like if nothing else was at stake or there wasn't like a higher level of something being taught here, Jesus' response would be petty and even like potentially problematic. Like it'd be kind of weird for him to respond this way, right? Like it would sound at best like fake humility, like extreme false humility. If he's like, I command you to, let, to be humble and let me wash your feet. Like that would be a strange thing to say. But once the symbolism is seen in this story, once the other higher spiritual plane is in view, Jesus' words, we realize these are almost inevitable, right? Like, unless I wash you, you don't have any part with me. Because he's not just talking about washing his feet, right? He said, no, no, I have to completely cleanse you. And this points what I'm about to do for you in a day's time where I'll pour out my blood for you and, and die for you so you can be made clean. So the first thing that we see, though it's happening here, it isn't just about washing feet. This is about Jesus dying. Like, this is about sin forgiving. So this points not just to dirty feet that need to be cleaned, but to sin that has to be dealt with if we're ever to have right relationship with Jesus. So this is the first thing that we see taught here, that this foot washing, it points to Jesus' work on the cross. And so when Peter hears this, though he doesn't fully understand, he knows he wants full inheritance of whatever Jesus promises to offer. So he completely flips, right? He's like, okay, not just my feet then, but my hands and my head wash all of me, right? And I, and I love this about Peter. Like his heart is often about 10 paces in front of his head, right? And, and God seems to honor that. Like his earnest desire just to, to love the Lord and then he teaches them after and he catches them up along the way. Um, so what we see in verses 10 and 11 then is how Jesus responds to Peter here. And in this response, we see a second truth that Jesus' action demonstrates for us. What we see is not only do we need to find, or not only do we find in Jesus the once and for all cleansing that we all need, but this side of Jesus' resurrection, even before our death, each day we're to come and to find new and needed daily cleansing. That's what Jesus is saying here, right? If only your, only your feet, right? Because the rest of you, right, have been washed. Um, what's being said here, this isn't, this isn't a... Um, new justification that needs to happen, right? What Jesus isn't saying that each day payment for sin must be done. Like Jesus paid for sin once and for all. No new debt from sin can ever be incurred. But nonetheless, fresh forgiveness, new mercy, and a cleansing is needed for the presence of sin that still remains. Like in verses six through eight, the foot washing symbolizes the once for all cleansing of Christ's work on the cross, the cleansing that was just a day away in the story. It was a once-for-all act. Yet, simultaneously in Christ, as shown in this act, we see there's a needed forgiveness and a cleansing from sin every day. Not for salvation, but continually from this salvation as we're being made more and more like Christ. Like what Jesus is teaching is what we see all through the New Testament and each of our lives as Christians, is that we are free from the penalty of sin but not yet free from the presence of sin. Like if you were a Christian, are you currently free from the penalty of sin? Yes, yes, resoundingly so. 
Are you free from the presence of sin? No. Like we live in this already not yet tension. And this is what Jesus is saying. The one who has a bath is clean and does not yet need to wash except for his feet. He's overall clean. He is washed. But yet there's still sin to be eliminated in this life, even if the penalty is already taken. Like another way to think of this is that verses six through eight point to what Jesus will ultimately do for us from his work on the cross. Meaning there is a reality of our salvation yet unrealized. That's good news, right? There's a reality to your salvation yet unrealized. And yet verses 10 through 11 reveal what Jesus immediately offers us from this same work on the cross. Meaning there's a realization of our salvation in this present reality. Like both are true. Like there is a reality to our salvation yet unrealized that will come. And right now there's a realization of the salvation in this reality. We have, it's a both and from the work on the cross. Like the work of salvation is a permanent accomplishment on your behalf by Jesus that will be realized when you die while also actively permeating in and through your life until you die. The work of salvation, it's done. You are saved from your sins and Jesus has brought you to relationship with him. Like, I want you to hear that. In Christ, you are saved from your sins. Like, like Jesus paid for your sins. He really died. Like, some of you, there's sins coming to mind. Like, it's settled. That debt is paid for once and for all. Be forgiven because you're forgiven. It's work of salvation is done. But also, no, there's hope in this. The work of salvation, then, it's continuing, right? Don't be surprised then. Yet Jesus, he's calling you to continue to repent. And he is daily removing sin from your life for the relationship that you have with him. So I ask, like, what do you need to repent of today? Like some of you, some of you are like Judas, that you don't know Jesus and you're living in unbelief like Judas and you're continuing to betray. Like you continue just to seek to put Christ to death. Jesus, he's coming to wash you, but you're not his. So hear and believe, be saved from your sin. I, I encourage you, like string out the natural progression of your sin. The thing that you're trusting in, like, like, Play it all the way out to the very end of that. And what hope do you have at the end of the rope? What's at the end of that? It, there's nothing at the end, right? It's death. And then what? Like play that out and then see Jesus. Maybe you're a disciple of Jesus. I asked them, like, what area are you refusing to give to him? Right? The whole story, what I love, it's against the backdrop of communion. Right? This first Lord's Supper that he practiced with his disciples um, before he goes to the cross. We practice this each and every Sunday. And, and, and a few weeks ago after communion, David Pull shared something with me that I thought was just unbelievable insight. I've been hanging on to it and chewing on it a lot. And I thought it's a good time to share it with you. He, he, he had been processing too that in communion, you, we rightly think about Jesus giving himself to us. And that's what this represents. But also each Sunday that we come and take this, it's an admission primarily, even though he gives himself to us, we are also then submitting and giving ourselves to him, right? It's a both and. It's from his work, but then for relationship. And so to be washed, you have to give yourself to him. You can't push him away. What area then are you refusing to really be washed of? Like confess it, repent of it, be cleansed of it. Practically see it put to death in your life. And I don't know what it is specifically in a room this size. Here's all I know. It's not generic. It's not just sin. It is specific. 
So today, bring it to Jesus' feet as he offers to wash yours. Okay, we're going to read these last verses and see the last thing Jesus teaches us. Starting in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said, that, said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am, he, I am, or for so I am. If I say then, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Okay, in these verses, for our time's sake, we're going to draw out just this third teaching of Jesus from this story, from this act. What we're presented with is what I think is the heart of what Jesus is teaching here. It's actually um, what we've been walking through too as well the last several Wednesday nights in our men's study. We've been going through a book called um, The Unsaved Christian. And so it's, it's about cultural Christianity, about how people just assume they're Christian because they have proximity to other Christians, a lot like Judas. Proximity to Jesus doesn't make you a Christian. Proximity to a church or other Christians doesn't make you a Christian. Like what we've been talking about in this class is that Jesus won't allow you just to come and receive the utility of his cleansing. Meaning like he won't let you just come and receive the practicalness of it or, or the practicality of it or just the usefulness of it. But he actually, actually requires you to be changed by the reality of who he is. Like, like so many people, they're good with, right? Sins being forgiven. They hear that and they're like, sure thing. Like what, what do I need to do? Like Jesus died for me? That's great, right? Or, or get out of hell free? That, and I just have to repeat these words. Repeat after me, take that right? Go to heaven? Why wouldn't I want that, right? Like, agree in all of those things. And yet what we see here, uh, Je Jesus shows us there's a complete cost that comes at this change to receive this cleansing. Like, to be actually cleansed by him, there is a cost of your life in submission. And in fact, this is what we celebrate in baptism. We talked about communion, the second uh, sacrament that we practice, the second thing that Jesus instituted for the church to do is baptism. Like, we recognize baptism it, it, it is the life of a professing Christian making this eternal or external testimony of a new inward reality in their life, right? That in baptism, we, we are confessing that we're buried with Christ in his death and baptism, but then also we're raised in his resurrection, by his resurrection, to walk in newness of life. If that's the case, if that's what we're called to, we can't go to him and simply continue to be who we were. But rather, we are changed by him when we believe in him. And if we're changed by him, then we must live according to the very pattern and character of his life. Like our life has to match his. That's why he says in these verses, wash one another's feet. Because that's what he does. That's who he is. And he doesn't say this because actually foot washing is what we need to do. Because that would be kind of weird again, right? I think to practice. Um, this is not saying that foot washing is akin to godliness. That's not at all but because, as we've seen over and over, the heart of humility is. Like, like foot washing is done here because it's a cultural symbol uh, to follow Christ's example. 
Uh, it's not a third Christian sacrament. So I'll just make that clear. This isn't a third thing. That, when he says wash one another's feet, he's not saying literally continue to do that. But rather, he did this because it was common in practice. So this isn't a command for disciples who continue on through the church to, to literally wash one another's feet. But rather, Jesus did this because it conceptually pointed out an even greater truth and because it was culturally practiced in the time and it met an actual need. Like, why did Jesus wash feet? Because their feet needed to be washed, and that's what people did. And it pointed to a greater reality that spans all centuries and times. So when Jesus on the heels of saying, be cleansed, then says, now wash one another's feet, what he's doing is pointing out the heart of what he's after in these verses. And it's at the hearts of his disciples to be like his own. Like when we rightfully understand the truth of God in our heads, when we come to understand what Jesus is saying, it means our hearts will be changed. And when our hearts are changed, he's showing that our hands will act in a way of humility and honor both to others and God. And he's given us this example here where, where we can examine ourselves as Christians if we realize that all three aren't present. Correct truth about God in our lives, right understanding of who he is, real relationship with God, love of God, being known by him and knowing him, but then living in a selfless way because of God, then we have to ask, have we really been washed by Jesus? Or figuratively, were your feet just briefly made clean? Like if we are to count ourselves as followers of Christ, there must be humble service in our lives towards others. Like one commentator says, we must continually be people of the towel. Again, we are to wash one another's feet. Meaning Jesus is teaching that the church has received the essential cleansing by him in the daily forgiveness of sins, but we can help take away the day-to-day -day dirt of the world by humbly serving one another. Like, think about that. And we do this, we actually encourage one another to godliness. I think about that, and uh, like often we, we want to do great things for God. Like if, if, if this story is ours, and we, we see ourselves in this story being saved by him, we think, I would like to do something then great for you, God, in response. And I was thinking about that this week. Like, what's the greatest thing to do for God be to look like God and act like God, right? Can you do anything greater than godliness? That seems to be the greatest thing is to be like him if he's the greatest, right? Like surely godliness is the greatest thing we can do. And yet this is the irony. Godliness, potentially I guess the greatest thing we could do is positioning ourselves to do the lowliest of things, to serve in the most humble, to be the least self-promoting and most self-giving away because this is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus has done. Like if Jesus has positioned himself in this way, we must ask, who then who has God placed in your life to serve like this? I mean, he placed himself in people's lives to serve in this way, and he's now placed people in your life to serve this way as well. So as we begin to wrap up our time, I ask the question, like who has God positioned you to cons consistently and continually serve? Yeah, I was trying to think this week, just different groups of people in the room, like, like some children in the room, but definitely teenagers in the room. Like, do you serve your siblings? Do you serve your parents? It's not an abstract, far-out group of people. It's the people most in your life. Do you serve them this way? Like, how can you, how should you serve like this? Like, do you ask? Are you trying to think creatively, how can I serve my siblings? Are you just doing what's being asked of you? That's probably a good place to start. Like, I want you to hear this isn't something for, to be true of you one day. But to be honest, at the start of his ministry, it's believed that some of the disciples, if not many, 
weren't much older than some of you, right? So to take his word to heart, he's calling you. Hear that. Other group, like spouses, if you have a husband or a wife in this room, you are called to love your spouse. You are called to give of yourself to your spouse in every way. And this is God's good design, but it's also his expected design. He's called it to be this. So if there is something in the way of this, whether it be a suffering, right, a struggle, a past sin against you, a past sin in your life that you chose, a current sin that you're continually acting upon, if there is an obstacle, hear Jesus and be washed of it, right? And know that you don't have to go alone, right? You don't have to do this alone. But also know to receive this washing, it will require a position of humility to experience this cleansing. Like whether that be through trusting conversation, I invite you to that, right? Whether that be time just confessing what it is to someone, confessing your sin, um, opening up in community, whether that be ongoing counseling, go together like with with your spouse, um, but know that you are called to give of yourself in every way. Intimacy in all areas, physical, spiritual, emotional, we are called to give and receive fully. That's what we're called to do, to give of ourselves, to serve in every way to our spouse. But yet, seeing that be true, also see Jesus here. Before calling us to take those steps, see where he moves, right? Before saying, walk that way and do this, he washes our feet. So no, before you have to move, see Jesus moving towards you, and you can have hope that you can actually walk in this direction from this cleansing that he offers. In this line of thinking, particularly husbands, wives too, but this is just speaking from my own call as a husband, and even like things I had to wrestle with personally this week, like as as the flu sleeps through, again, as I said, like, you just find out how selfish you are. Like, I was like, geez, and what a, what a sermon to like, okay, like, it was just right there, right in front of me, like, how sinful I am, that like, like, how often do I love and serve as a means to an end, right, without realizing that I'm called to love and serve because that's the end of my call to my spouse, like, and, and this is practical, right, meaning then there should also be continual change in this practice, like the ways to serve and love my spouse, to love Brandy, they change, right? Because days change. And so I have to be intentional. I have to ask questions. I have to learn. I have to grow. I have to communicate. I hear this. You will not accidentally or unintentionally fulfill this call to love your wife or to love your husband. But you can so easily and selfishly flip it, like to do something for the goal of gaining and not giving. I just want you to realize how deadly this will be over the days and the weeks and the months and the years. Like he, Jesus' words here, he's calling you to live out this in your relationship. Again, parents, and, and particularly, again, dads, because this is coming from a dad, but also at moms, um, but just from a personal standpoint, this is what I needed first. Like, like serve your children. Like love to give your life to them as you lead them to know Jesus Know that what you do and how you do it, it is the clearest example of the gospel in their life. You are the testimony to them of who Jesus is and all that you do in the manner in which you do it. Like discipling your children, it's your call. But loving and serving them, it's the permanent manner of your task where it needs to be, right? Like how, how will you lead your children to life himself if you aren't in response to Jesus laying yours down each and every day, right? Like you have this unique opportunity. And this is particularly somewhat for parents then who still have children at home. 
But you have this unique opportunity, this short opportunity. Like, think about it. 18 years out of all eternity. He's designed it this way somehow in the mystery and the goodness of God. You get this one time for all eternity with your children to selflessly point them to Jesus, to live with them in this unique relationship, this unique role where you're an adult and they're a child. And that's it. And there's no more. Like even with Jesus, that time comes and goes. Like and if you ever come to my office, I have like a, a, a sheet a lot like this from a notebook. You get 936 weekends with your kids. That's it. So I just have a countdown. And it is humbling to come back on a Monday morning and have to mark out the weekend and realize I wasted it. I didn't love them. I didn't lead them to Jesus. I lived for myself. I didn't even think about making, making the most of this to point them to who Jesus is and this opportunity to be their dad. Like it, it is humbling like how selfish we can be. We need to see this. And, and when I share this, I'm not saying to make an idol out of your kids either. I'm not saying idolize this time to like find your worth in them. Sometimes, and we probably even talk about this tonight somewhat at Journey PM. Sometimes in parenting, we parent our kids in a way where we try to position our kids to be a representation to the world of ourselves. That is not the way we should parent. But rather, what we realize and what parenting is, is this opportunity where you've been positioned by God to primarily represent God to your children. Like that's what's happening in parenting. So look and see how Jesus chooses to lead and to love. Look at his example. Like this week, give your time. Like give your love. Give your joy, your presence. Like give your best words to your kids, right? Pour them out as Jesus does. If you're single in this room, right? If you're single in this room, like no, God, he has by his kindness and his good design, the New Testament tells us this. He's uniquely positioned you in this season with freedom to, to go and to give and to love and to serve. And so I'd encourage you in this season to think about, like what freedom do I have? Like who in this church can I come alongside from the position that I'm in to serve in a unique way that others can't? But also, as I say that, I want you to also know that the advantages of singleness aren't merely strategic for ways to, you, to live missionally, right? But rather, the Bible teaches genuine, real advantages. It's for your good and your joy. Like, singleness doesn't just make you a more useful person who then is required to fall on the sword of romantic love. Like, I have to give this up. But rather, singleness, whether it's just for a season or it's for this life, it's a particular opportunity to know what it's like to be undivided in affection and devotion to Jesus. But then as we see here, to also participate like Jesus. He was single and he had ways to participate that others couldn't because of the freedom this allowed him. In relation to singleness then, uh, married, as, as we're getting ready to finish, um, may we be a place where it is more common for single people in this room to have to say no to families, right? Than to have no one to go to. Like, may we be a place where they're being asked so often to be woven into the fabric of our community, of this family. They don't know who to, who to say yes to because they have to say no to others. Then it be a place where we just hope those who don't have a spouse, they might find a way to stay, right? They might catch on, but because our, culture, our church culture is so built around married couples, that this isn't a place they can really belong. Like, may that never be true of us, right? That we intentionally live in a way where we seek out, we love, and we serve beyond ourselves. We don't live for ourselves. As I think about this, let us remember our Bibles as we live out the words in our church. Like marriage, it points to Genesis, but singleness, it actually points to Revelation, right? So, so let us love and serve one another in the beauty of both of God's ordained 
realities. Okay, this is the last portion. That's all inward. And primarily, we're to love each other. Like the, the over 50, I think, love one another. That's in the context of the church. Yet Jesus did demonstrate loving those who are outside, right? He went in a way to, to serve and to love and lead people to know him. And as a church, we want to be a group of people who are primarily an inward family to love each other this way while also always having an outward focus, living in the commission that Jesus has given us from the great commandment. So how do we do that? How do we live out as Jesus? Well, what did Jesus do? It was so simple. He knew the names and the needs of his neighbors, right? And he served accordingly. Like as he knew the names and needs of his neighbors, people were come, came to him or changed by his heart after seeing his heart in action towards them. So your neighbors live that way. How do we apply this? Like the people right around you, like your neighbors, do you know their names? That's a good first start. Do you know the people you live next to? Names of people known and loved by God. And do you realize each of those neighbors have real needs, spiritual, physical, emotional needs? Like there is a particular number of needs of the particular number of neighbors, like a precise number to a particular group of people that God and his sovereignty has positioned around members of the journey Southern Illinois, right? Like, like a number of needs that maybe they aren't even aware of themselves, right? Yet he knows in all of his wisdom because in accordance to his plan, not only is he broken by these needs, but we see Jesus, his body was broken, his blood was poured out so that every maverick molecule would be subject to his rightful rule. So don't you think that he's positioned you intentionally to see this rightness played out in their lives? Like these needs to be met, he sent you there. Like if we had a map of, of Southern Illinois, think of the members here, the Christians scattered from the life of this church and the dots around that maybe represent the neighbors and the needs that he is sending you to. Like he's sending us. Do we know? Do we know what's needed? Are we loving and living a life in this way from the heart of Christ? So yes, by Jesus, be cleansed. Like today, be cleansed once and for all and also continually. Be washed. But I think appropriately, also, be warned. <laughs> I think there's warning in this. As we really dig through it, we see the warning. Like if we are a people who do not act in the same way as Jesus, then we have to ask, have we really been washed and changed by him? Like that's the case. Don't follow the example of Judas. Like don't leave here refusing true cleansing. Don't just have your feet washed, but have your heart be changed. Experience this change today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for what you came to do. Um, Jesus, that you didn't just show up one day and die on a cross, but we have your whole life. That is a living testimony of the depth of the character of you that we for eternity will not be able to plumb. God, the intricacies, the intimacy, the fullness of who you are, that is what you're calling us to, to know you. Father, to know what it's like to have a good father. God, to know what it's like to have you give yourself to us as we are possessed by your spirit, like not just union with you, but truly united with you as you've come to us. God, to have a friend in Jesus, a true older brother who will love us to the very end. Father, may this love change us. May we leave here differently, God, because that's what you want us to do. God, that's what you've come to do. May we, may we be people who represent you. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.